Well, good morning, church. It's a real joy to worship the Lord this morning, is it not? What a blessing to be together. Didn't quite know if I was going to make it. My wife is due any day now, any moment now, so Lord willing, we'll make it through the sermon. But uh, we're here, so locked and loaded. But we're going to be in Ruth chapter 3, continuing our study of the book of Ruth, and it's a real joy to preach this chapter with you. If you would stand with me, if you're able, we are going to read together through the totality of Ruth chapter 3. It's 18 verses. It says in verse 1, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young woman you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and glorify you for your precious and powerful word, which cuts to the marrow in between the bone, in between the joints, and in between the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. We thank you for this precious revelation of your redemption in Christ that we will study this morning beholding in the characters at play in the story of Ruth. And thank you for the gift of fellowship in the corporate body assembled. Pray that our worship and our time now will be pleasing to you and that you would speak by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we commit it all to you for the glorification of Christ and the edification of the saints. In Jesus' name, amen. I've called this sermon today, The Romance of Redemption. 
And I don't know about you, but we are presently enjoying, of course, the Christmas season, celebrating Advent. And it is commonplace in our culture for there to be a plethora of Hallmark Christmas-style movies available for consumption, portraying a version of romance that feeds the imaginations, is full of kind of cliche endings, sappy plot lines. You can tell I don't watch those movies. Uh, On the overall worthiness of that entertainment, you be the judge. But in this sermon, we're going to see a congruence of all of these kind of elements, but in a much richer story, a story that has eternal implications. It not only weaves together romance, but redemption. And all great stories, in my opinion, must include an element of redemption. It is at the fabric of our existence, it's the cry of our hearts that we participate in and experience personally and even corporately redemption in our lives. It is the of our souls, and it is, of course, the great provision that God has given in Christ to the needy soul to be redeemed. So it is these two themes that are woven, of course, through the book of Ruth. And as we've made our way up to this point in the storyline, we have seen characters fleshed out. We've seen Naomi. We've seen her journey uh, out of the land of promise into the land of Moab, and we saw how the Lord ultimately Um, she left, of course, because of famine. The Lord kind of disciplined them as a family in a severe way and ultimately through a long and painful journey brought them home. But she came home with no one except Ruth. And, of course, Ruth clung to her. And we saw this great and precious seed of faith in the heart of Ruth as she clung to her mother-in-law, ultimately declaring that in doing so, she was clinging to her God. She was leaving Moabite life and culture and lifestyle behind and and moving forward into a life of faith and promise, but very much a life of unknown uh, and difficult circumstances. She was coming back to a place impoverished, without a husband, as a foreigner, as a widow, in a land where the Moabites were not favored people. And here is the context in which we approach. And of course, last week, if you were here, we saw a great character study of Ruth herself, this woman who embodied such virtue such faith, such love, such hesed in the Hebrew language, which is covenant, steadfast love, this virtuous, trustworthy, worthy love uh, that is characteristic of God's covenant love for his people. And the idea and concept of hesed is woven throughout all the book of Ruth, weaving its way ultimately into the character plot lines, the storyline, and the ultimate conclusion of it all. But as we study Ruth chapter 3 specifically today, I want to look at Again, the characters most prominent in the story, which are Naomi, Ruth, and now this further development of the man Boaz. We're going to be encountering Boaz in a whole new way today. And though this sermon is not explicitly only about Boaz, he is indeed the cornerstone of the entire narrative. He is the man whose character, the story will rise or fall. What Boaz will do or not do will ultimately determine the destiny, not only Ruth, not only Naomi, but ultimately even the nation of Israel. And it's a profound implication that we will see. So I want to look at it in three lights. I want to look at these characters that we're going to see in chapter 3. And we're going to look at them distinctly in certain ways, which I'll explain in a moment. And we're going to unpack what it looks like in these individual lives as they embody these virtues that I'm going to explain to you in a moment. Then we're going to tie it up all at the end. So there's going to be some kind of application throughout, 
some weaving together of these storylines, these narratives, and then hopefully a concluding application at the end. But I want to point out that Naomi in this story, and particularly in this chapter, represents the embodiment of hope. Naomi represents, I believe, the embodiment of hope. And Ruth represents the embodiment of active and obedient faith. Active and obedient faith. And then, of course, Boaz, who rightly is, in many ways, the hero of the story, the champion of the plot line, is the embodiment of redemption. Is the embodiment of redemption, or you could say the embodiment of hesed, covenant love. So Naomi is the embodiment of hope, Ruth is the embodiment of faith, and Boaz is the embodiment of redemption. And overarching the entire story is the reality that God brings about his sovereign redemptive purposes through human agency as they pursue and embody, notice this, faith, hope, and love in everyday life. God works through human agency, his redemptive purposes, as those individuals pursue and embody faith, hope, and love in everyday life. In other words, when we live out said, or a faithful, loyal, and merciful love before God and one another, God will use our lives to tell the story of his glorious redemption in Christ. This is indeed what is happening here before us. Now, to go further into this before we dive directly into the text and start unpacking it expositionally, we need to kind of lay some bricks down because we haven't quite touched on uh, this whole concept of kinsman redeemer. Now, if you are well-versed in the scriptures, you might already know uh, all that there is to know about such things, but most of us probably have a little bit of fuzziness around what is this whole concept of a kinsman redeemer. And there's a lot of different places we can go in the Old Testament. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time uh, more than what's necessary in unpacking this concept because it has to do a lot with Jewish law, Jewish custom, and it has to do a lot with principles. And the principles and how they are applied vary based on circumstances and the ethical demands of said circumstances. So there can be a lot of complicating factors uh, in the role of a kinsman redeemer. In other words, his role within Israel was very broad, uh, while also at the same time being specific in a few ways. So with specificity in mind, I want to outline the ways in which this kinsman redeemer functioned in ancient Israel, particularly in light of how Boaz will function here in the story and the buildup of all the tension that we'll see in chapter 3. Uh, first, we see uh, that we kind of have to unpack who Boaz is, first of all, in order for this to make sense. Boaz, number one, is a close relative of Elimelech. We see this in chapter 2, verse 1. Secondly, in the same verse, we see that Boaz is a worthy man. It's an interesting phraseology, a worthy man, the ESV translates it. You could say that he is a mighty man, or to quote uh, a pastor, Rich Lusk, who gave me this definition, he is really a hero of a man. It's a very helpful definition of Boaz. He is a worthy man. He is a mighty man. He is indeed a hero of a man. Interestingly, when Solomon built the temple in 1 Kings 7.21, and he put pillars in the north and in the south, he named one of the pillars of uh, the temple of the Lord Boaz, signifying in honor the role that Boaz played in the line of King David, and also to symbolically describe this pillar of a man that Boaz was and was revered as in ancient Israel. But particularly in this story, we see the character of Boaz really being fleshed out. 
Thirdly, Boaz is, of course, as we read, a kinsman redeemer. As a result of his relationship to Elimelech. And as a redeemer, this is really key, Boaz in the story is a type of Christ, our redeemer. This is an interpretive key for understanding the significance of the role he plays both in the story and the overarching plan of God. Boaz is a type of Christ. And fourthly, Boaz is a man marked in the narrative by one chief attribute, though he had many. He is marked by kindness or hased. Kindness or hased. He is a man that is living by these ethics, the mercy and kindness of God. We see this in chapter 2, verse 20. I think it's worthy quickly of meditation to realize that, like the Lord Jesus, the most amazing characteristic of Boaz was not his wealth or his status, though he possessed all of that, but the weight of his words and the grace of his lips. The town had spoken about Naomi and Ruth. There had been plenty of gossip. But notice only Boaz had spoken to Ruth and then through Ruth to Naomi. Boaz was the only man, it seems, in the storyline that directly bent low enough to deal directly with the person, with Ruth herself, and then consequently with her mother-in-law. So Boaz is a man marked in the story by gracious speech, by said, by real godlike kindness, by a covenant faithfulness that bound this man to his deepest core. This is the kind of man that Boaz is. And this is the way of our Lord, who upon seeing faith in the heart, reaches out and touches the broken and the unclean. This is the way of our Lord, and this is the way of Boaz. And as a result of all of these realities, uh, the law of God in a few different places had certain demands put upon the relatives of fellow clan members who went through certain kinds of tragedy, whether it be tragedy of death, tragedy of poverty, tragedy of widowhood. And it was incumbent upon the relatives of said clan to raise up the inheritance of whether it be her, his brother or uh, his close relative. It was his, incumbent upon him to raise up um, the line in his family for a couple different reasons. One, for the uh, preservation of the tribe. And secondly, so that the tribe didn't intermarry and mingle with other tribes. You say, well, what's the big deal with that? We don't seem to have an aversion to any of those things today. Well, God was preserving a seed, the seed of Abraham, ultimately the seed of Christ, through the nation of Israel, particularly through the line of Judah. And in all of this, God was making sure that his own house was kept in order. So as the Israelites kept their homes in order, and practiced said to their neighbor and their brothers and their clan members and had that familial obligation and their ethic built around it, God was making sure not only the preservation of the individuals in said tribes, but he was making sure the preservation of the seed of promise would make its way faithfully to its desired goal, ultimately culminating through the line of David, as we'll see here, and then ultimately to Christ. So it was very important that this role of kinsman redeemer was followed. So they were responsible for the redemption of property. In the event that a relative sells their land through the necessity of poverty, the kinsman redeemer would make sure that the land got apportioned to each tribe remained within that tribe. It was not seized in greed by another clan. 
They were also responsible for the redeeming of fellow tribesmen from poverty-induced servitude to another clan or foreigner. So if you lost everything or you went bankrupt and you had to kind of become an indentured servant, God made provision in the law that you would not become a slave, especially of your brother, but that you would work for a time until either you or the kinsman redeemer could buy you back. So this was an ethic in Israel. And then thirdly, we see broadly that the role of kinsman redeemer was to raise up his brother's house and namely do so by marrying his widow so that the family would not marry strangers. And you can see this in Leviticus 25, um, uh, Deuteronomy 25, in Numbers 27. You see some of the principles here fleshed out. We're not going to go to those individual texts for the sake of time, but if you're interested more in a deeper study of the role of a kinsman redeemer and that whole context in ancient Israel, I recommend you go there as a start. So we see again that all of this is in order for God to keep his house in order as the Israelites practice love before God and neighbor. So it's within this context that now we can dive into the text and begin to unpack these characters that we're going to develop throughout the story. And I think as we do so, let's just look at verse 1. It says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young woman you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. So we see this very interesting interplay as opposed to chapter 2, if you were with us last week. We saw that the initiative, initially, as these widowed women come back to Israel, is really on the part of Ruth. Ruth has this holy initiative, this virtuous initiative that she takes to go out into the field, not knowing that it would be Boaz, God sovereignly working that into his plan. And um, we looked at that last week. Ruth had this real hope-filled initiative, but now we see that the roles kind of reverse a little bit, and instead of Ruth taking initiative, Naomi takes initiative. Now, this is very significant, not only in the plot line of the story, but also by way of application for us, because we see, as I mentioned, Naomi embodies this hope of God, because she begins to see in the strand that only sight can afford her this thread of redemption beginning to kind of get woven into her life. She sees this glimmer of hope in the man Boaz. She sees this opportunity uh, of redemption. More than even Ruth sees it. And she understands the Jewish custom. She understands the Jewish law. And as a desperate woman, she begins to turn away from her bitterness, away from her depression, away from her barrenness, and she begins to face the opportunities in front of her with a fresh vision, okay? She begins to have hope-filled initiative like Ruth did in chapter 2. And this is really important because she responds here with a kind of wisdom that is not merely pragmatic but divinely discerned. She has a wisdom that is looking out in like Proverbs 14.1, uh, she is characteristic of the wise woman who builds her house and this is the characteristic of Naomi here. She turns away from her pain. She turns away from the things that have been keeping her stuck. She begins to see that perhaps there's a future and a hope for me. Perhaps there is something here, not only for me, but particularly for Ruth, who she now feels an acute burden for, acute responsibility for, uh, to make sure that she has preserved herself in the event that she passes what is Ruth going to do? Here she is a foreigner, a widow in a foreign land with no one essentially to take care of her. 
And, and she has this real burning uh, responsibility that is God-given to take care of Ruth. And I think it's really important applicationally because we see that working with hope-filled initiative is not hoping things work out while we passively sit on the sideline of life. Working with a hope-filled initiative means that we seek out God's will for our lives in accordance with God's revealed will, and we act accordingly. We should learn from Naomi here. Wisdom builds. Wisdom takes steps. Wisdom takes initiative. Wisdom doesn't sit back in self-pity, in hopelessness, despondency, but instead of wallowing in her hopelessness, for the first time in the story, she takes her God-given responsibility, which it was, to seek Ruth's welfare as her own in a new chapter, an entirely new chapter, and transitional moment in the story is born as a result. See the power of a hope-filled initiative? The entire storyline pivots on this attitude switch in Naomi. Now, it's not going to end there, of course. That's not the end of the story, praise God, but it is certainly the beginning of a new chapter. And in your lives as well and in my lives, often the beginning of a new season, the beginning of a new chapter, is to look at our circumstances and say, Lord, where are you weaving redemption? Where are you moving? Where is the opportunity for a hope-filled initiative to be seized? Or am I just going to sit here and wallow in self-pity, wallow in hopelessness, wallow in my pain, and hope in some gracious manner God does something miraculous? And certainly God is going to do something miraculous. But see, the, the principle is in play. Naomi does something not merely pragmatic. She does something of great wisdom. And though her vision is not entirely fully orbed, she doesn't quite see how this is going to play out. And she even does some things that are quite humorous in kind of bringing Ruth before Boaz, as we're going to see in a moment. Uh, but nonetheless, she takes a hope-filled initiative and she turns away from selfishness, away from bitterness, and responds in selflessness towards the unfolding plan of God. And friends, this is what we must do as the people of God. Like Naomi, we must embody this kind of hope-fueled initiative. We have to look out at our circumstances, and we may say a lot of things that are wrong, a lot of things that are broken, a lot of things that are not the way we wish they were. But we look out and say, Lord, where are you weaving the story of redemption? Because God is moving. God is active. He is never passive. And we should be active with him. When our Father is working, we should be working. And this is the story of Naomi here in chapter 3. So what we see now is we pivot from Naomi, who begins to kind of see a vision of what could be. And she begins to kind of plant some seeds of hope, not only in her own heart, but in Ruth's, as she describes and kind of almost answers a, or gives a rhetorical question. Is not Boaz our relative? I mean, you've been with him for some time in the field. Um, you've been with his young women, according to how he commanded you. And now she's going to give Ruth some very specific instructions, very interesting instructions. Um, and this is just like a mother-in-law, and I say that charitably, nobody throw rocks at me, to kind of initiate this, almost this matchmaking process, okay? We don't want to make much of this beyond what the story does, but there is an element of this humanity in the text in which Ruth and Naomi, they're sort of just like grasping at the little bit of hope they have with the prospect of Boaz being this redeemer. And, and Naomi is going to give Ruth some very direct commands. They're not suggestions. They're commands. Do this, do this, do this. This is how you present yourself. And here she is, a foreign woman. She's been married before. She's not a child. 
She's been romanced. Um, she's not a virgin, and yet here she is as a woman charting a new course with a new faith and a new land with a new prospect. And she's going to do things differently. And she's going to do things by wisdom. So here we see now the embodiment of a faith-filled obedience in Ruth. We see a faith, uh, a hope-filled um, uh, initiation on the part of Naomi. Now we see a faith-filled obedience. And I want to break this down for us because the specific actions uh, are symbolic in the text. They're not just pragmatic suggestions on the part of Ruth, uh, though it would appear that way on the surface. They're symbolic of the way in which a bride, in a way in which the church, you and I, present ourselves to our Lord and Redeemer. So I want that to be in your mind's eye as we approach this next section. So first, in regard to what Ruth is commanded to do, let's just reread 3 through 5. It says, Naomi tells her, Wash therefore and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. And he would tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. Now, quick qualifier, if you're a parent here, I would never tell my daughter to do this. This is really bad advice, right? Like, you don't tell your daughter, okay, get dressed up, look your best, go out to the guy while he's sleeping in the middle of the night, uncover his feet, and see what happens. Not good advice. Don't do that. But in this context, very different, very different. First, we see that faith prepares oneself to meet the Redeemer. Really important. Ruth washes and anoints herself before approaching Boaz. This is not an attempt of a cheap woman seeking to seduce a man. Okay? If that's the impression you get, I would strongly suggest it's the wrong impression. This is not a cheap woman seeking to seduce a man, but the way of a bride being properly adorned for her husband. This is a very honorable action she's undertaking. She's not prostituting herself. She is preparing herself. She is a woman of virtue, about to encounter a man of great virtue. These are not children doing child's play. This is not high school. These are grown adults doing something upon which the destiny of Israel, the destiny of the promised seed of God, would ultimately hang in the balance. So as human as this is, it has eternal significance. So we can kind of resurrect it from the commonality uh, that we often put it in, while at the same time not jettisoning the real humanity that's present. So Ruth prepares herself to meet her Redeemer. I think God would say to his people in Isaiah chapter 1, I want to read just four verses. He would say to his own people in verse 16 of chapter 1 of Isaiah, wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, and bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. He says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel... You shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 
God is, of course, here in Isaiah rebuking the hypocrisy of his people in false worship, but it has overtones of the kind of preparedness that we as the bride of Christ should come before the Lord with. We don't come before the Lord cheaply. The Lord Jesus paid an unbelievable cost for us to come adorned the right way. When we come together in public worship, we should come a certain way. We should come prepared. We should not come defiled in uncleanness. We should not come in the filthy garments of the flesh. We should be putting off the old man and putting on the new, as we'll see in a moment. But we need to come as a prepared bride, and this is exactly what Ruth is embodying here in her faith-filled obedience. She listens to her mother-in-law, and she, she does what she said. She says, this is the right way to approach this man. And symbolically, it's the right way to approach our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Secondly, we see that in the embodiment of a faith-filled obedience, she puts off her old garments and puts on new ones. And the language could mean, though it's not explicit, it could mean that she actually put on a type of a wedding dress. She actually beautified herself, which is clear in the text, that she adorned herself, not in her common everyday outfit. She put off perhaps her garments of Moab, and she put on the garments of a respective and prospective Israelite. This is very significant. She comes to Boaz in a certain way. She comes to Boaz with an identity switch. She understands that she cannot be the woman she was, and she cannot identify, and she's already distanced herself greatly from Moab in her prior actions as the story has developed. But now she takes it a step further on the counsel of Naomi, and she goes to meet Boaz with a new identity. And it's the same admonition we as the people of God have to put off the old man, as I already said. Colossians 3, verse 12 and 14, describe the way in which we are to put off the old and put on the new. We are to be adorned in bright, white, clean garments of righteousness that are not ours in our own manufacturing, but they're given to us by grace through faith in Christ. We are to put on the new man. And as the bride of Christ, this must become our identity. We must identify, and I know it's difficult for dudes in the room to identify with being a bride. I get it. But that's what the Scripture says. That's what the Scripture uses as symbolic language, that we are wed to our Redeemer. And that as men and women alike, we are to put off the old, put off the old garments and put on the new. And this is exactly what we see Ruth doing. The question today for us is, what are you wearing? What is the garments that adorn your life? What is the outfit that you parade in private and in public? Are you living in the old clothes? Or are you living in the new clothes? And this is the admonition that we see practically for Ruth, but it bears witness for us today, that we should be a people who approach our Redeemer with a faith-filled obedience that puts off the old and puts on the new, that comes clean and prepared and ready to meet our Lord. Thirdly, we see Ruth has a posture of faith that is humble and pure. This is really significant. She has a posture of faith that is humble and pure. As I already insinuated, Ruth is not about to throw herself at Boaz like a loose woman. I mean, the setting is there. She could easily manipulate it. She could easily take uh, in, in a way what she thinks she needs. She's not boisterous. She doesn't demand his attention, but she submits herself to the wisdom of Naomi and ultimately the law of God, and she approaches Boaz, not as a lewd woman, but as a chaste, covered woman. As a chaste, covered woman. She doesn't flaunt her sexuality, but her submission. 
Very significant. She doesn't flaunt her sexuality, but her submission. She doesn't do away with her beauty. She beautifies herself rightly. Uh, Sexuality is not inherently bad, but she doesn't use that as a power tool to come at Boaz and to kind of leverage the situation for her gain. She comes at it with chastity, with purity, with submission, and she approaches the man as a servant, as a servant, very significant. So this is the posture that we as well should come before our Lord with, that though we have rights as sons and daughters of God, we do not flaunt our rights, but we come humbly, and we come in purity before our God. Proverbs says that the woman of folly is a boisterous woman, but here we see that a woman of wisdom is known by her quiet and gentle spirit, and her submission to the Lord of the harvest is evident in the text. So the way in which Naomi is counseling Ruth to come before Boaz is categorically different than a loose woman would come to a man in the middle of the night. But it's not only that, it's symbolic of the way in which we approach our Lord. And uh, What is your posture when you come before the Lord? Private, public. What is your posture? Do you come into his courts with reverence and submission or lewdness and pride? What is the attitude of your heart? It's very significant as we take inventory of our souls. When we come before the Lord, both in the corporate gathering and in your private life, do we come as servants of God? Children, for sure, but servants of God. Or do we come as lewd, proud, spoiled children who complain we don't get our way? This is not the way in which virtue adorns itself. This is not the way in which faith presents itself. And lastly, we see that Ruth possesses an obedient faith that is pleasing to her Redeemer. This is very significant. Ruth is going to, of course, come as we get further along here. We'll need to speed up a little bit. Ruth is going to come to Boaz, and and, and notice, we will notice, I should say, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, that Boaz is delighted in the faith of Ruth. He's delighted by a lot of things. He's delighted by Ruth. He's delighted in the appearance of Ruth. He's delighted in the approach of Ruth. He's delighted in the character of Ruth, but not least of which, he is delighted in the faith of Ruth. He's already commended that faith in the prior chapter, identifying her faith as that which had put aside her former land and had clung to the God of Israel, he says, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. So he's already identified this real, tangible, sincere faith. Boaz already knows it's present. And it's very significant because we must have faith if we're going to even come before the Lord. For Hebrews 11.6 makes it very plain that without faith, it's impossible to even please the Lord. So faith is the necessary ingredient both in our coming and in our pleasing of the Lord. Not only that, but faith pleases God in the very possession of it. So God is pleased with us because of our faith. Understand that. God is pleased with you because of your faith. But our posture and our preparation adorn our faith as genuine marks of a faith that works and a faith that saves. So let's learn from Ruth as we seek God together, that we seek him with the same preparation, the same purity, the same posture, and the same obedience that causes the Lord of the harvest to greet us, as we'll see here in a moment, with a blessing. This has It incurs a reaction from Boaz that's quite beautiful. So we see here this embodiment of hope-filled initiative in Naomi. We see the embodiment of a faith-filled obedience in Ruth. 
characteristics woven throughout the story. Now we're going to see Boaz, and we're going to take some time to unpack this great man who is the cornerstone of the storyline. So we will turn our attention now in verses 6, um, through really the rest of the chapter, to Boaz and this interaction that he has with Ruth as a redeemer, as a hero of a man. And he's going to respond to Ruth, and we're going to unpack it in, in five different lenses, if you will, five different portraits of this man. In verse 6, it says, So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. So again, this faithful obedience at play. And this is a beautiful verse. I love this. is my favorite verse in the whole chapter. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. This is such a beautiful picture. It has so many layers to it, okay? There's romance here. There's humility, there's beauty, there's quietness, there's intimacy, there's so many different levels. But what I want to focus on in it is the heart of this man, the heart of this Redeemer. Now, what may look like an anecdotal statement that Boaz, you know, had too much to eat, maybe a bit too much to drink, pretty loose, pretty relaxed, pretty chill, passes out in a heap of grain. What's the big deal? Well, there's actually quite more to it than that because Boaz, in these actions... There's a lot of symbolism here that needs to be unpacked. We see a man who has eaten, who has drunk, and whose heart, notice this, is full of hesed. Okay, full of hesed, loving kindness. So the language of the text is startling because it means that Boaz is the lord of the harvest. Okay, he plops down on his heap of grain. He is the lord of it. And it's practical possible that in that culture he was also guarding it from thievery as they just threshed it that night and it was late and he was exhausted and there was also some celebration around the harvest time so there was kind of a party happening and the man was probably working all day long laboring hard in the sun and now he has some really good food in his stomach and some really good drink in his stomach and he does what every man does and he goes to sleep but what it implies is so much more than that because here is a man that passes out at the end of a long day of labor, fully satisfied in his soul. Notice this. He's fully satisfied in his soul. What the text is implying is not that Boaz got drunk. Okay, don't read that from it. He did drink. He didn't get drunk. The drink doesn't bring out a different side of Boaz. It brings out the man that he really is. And this is the man that he really is. He is a man whose heart is merry. He is a man whose heart is full of hesed. He is a man who is a redeemer. He is a man who embodies a hero. And this simple anecdotal statement says so much about not just the character of Boaz, but the character of our Lord Jesus Christ, who also has a merry heart. He has a heart full of hesed. He has a heart heart, excuse me, towards us that is full of kindness, full of grace, full of love. Christ is not an angry Lord. He is a satisfied, happy God. And he is towards you and I with this merriment that, man, I pray that I get from the Lord progressively. I pray that my own heart would be more like this man who at the end of a long day of work doesn't go to bed distracted and tired and worn out with discontent, 
but is full of merriment, full of the joy of gladness, full of the joy of working his father's field. So, oh, to be more like Boaz, and in so doing, be more like Christ, whose heart is full of righteousness and goodness, who lays down his head at night, full of joy and delight. The heart of Christ is indeed reflected in the heart of Boaz. And we must pray that our hearts, especially as men, are brought into conformity with this splendid vision of a man overflowing with the bounty of God from his innermost being. This is who Boaz is at his core. He is relaxed. He is enjoying the moment. And interestingly enough, as we'll see, it doesn't compromise his virtue as this beautiful woman comes to him in the middle of the night. He is not looking to take advantage of it. He is not looking through a loose spirit to take advantage of a delicate situation that he so easily could. So we see the heart of this Redeemer chiefly in verse 7. It's a beautiful vision of the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ who is glad. He is satisfied and he calls us his friends, calls us sons and daughters. This is the heart of this man. Secondly, we see the voice of the Redeemer in verses 8 and 13. It says, at midnight, the man was startled, (laughs) naturally, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) and turns over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. What a beautiful approach. Here she comes softly. She comes humbly. She comes purely. She uncovers his feet, and it would be descriptive of kind of the wing of his garment. So, Interestingly, we see this in Luke chapter 8, verses 43 and 48, when the woman with the issue of blood in the Gospels comes to Jesus. If you know the story, and she works her way through the crowd, almost on her hands and knees, in desperate faith for healing. And she reaches out and touches the corner of his garment, believing that if she could just touch the fringe of his garment in faith, she would be healed. And she was drawing upon this Old Testament principle. She wasn't doing it some token charm. She understood that the wings of the rabbi were a covering and a protection. And it's the wings of this redeemer that Ruth is after. It's the wings of redemption that she is pursuing. Now, this is quite fascinating because this takes an interesting turn. If you're tracking with the story, you notice that Naomi sends Ruth on a mission, really, to be wed. Naomi, in her thinking, saying, if this goes well tonight, she'll come back a married woman. That was her thinking. That's as far as her vision was going, I believe, I believe. Ruth takes it a step further, doubling down on her own virtue and says, I'm not just here for marriage, I'm here for redemption. I'm here for something deeper than just my needs met. She's here for the sustenance of Naomi's family. This is what Ruth's heart at the center is all about. It's not about her, it's about Naomi. It's this selfless, virtuous, unbelievably pure love that Ruth embodies. And she comes to Boaz and doesn't come as a loose woman. She comes as a pure woman, and she uncovers his feet and just lays there and waits. Self-control, like, unimaginable. And, of course, Boaz, in the course of the night, turns over, recognizes that there's a woman at his feet, doesn't recognize her because she's covered, okay? She hasn't undressed herself. She's covered, and she has to identify herself. And here in this moment, she says, I am Ruth, your servant, And what she's saying there in the Hebrew is that I am a marriageable woman. I am not Ruth the Moabite. I am Ruth the Israelite. That's what she's saying. 
She's making a categorical distinction here for herself that she has earned the right to make because she has clung to the Lord in faith. She has obeyed the Lord in faith. She has a purity of faith. And she comes to Boaz and says, I am not Ruth the Moabite. I am Ruth your servant, your maidservant, meaning spread your wings over me and cover me. What a beautiful picture of the way in which the Lord covers us as his bride and the way in which we come before God and, and say, I am no longer what I was. I belong to you. Cover me. Protect me. Throw your cloak over me. And this, of course, incurs a beautiful response on the part of Boaz in verse 10. And he says, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. So he clearly identifies that while she was in the field, there was plenty of marriageable material out there, plenty of young men, perhaps better looking, uh, younger for bearing children, whatever it might be. Uh, her options were there. She was not uh, an optionless woman. She was not a woman who didn't have choices, but she made the best choice. She made the greatest choice. She made the most sacrificial choice in a real sense towards her own well-being on behalf of her mother-in-law, and she is praised for it, rightly so. The Lord speaks to her with a voice of tenderness, with a voice of commendation, and says, Blessed are you, my daughter, by the Lord. He says, you have made this last kindness, this last said, greater than the first. And what was the first in her clinging to, to Naomi? That was the greatest act that she had done up to that moment, that she had put aside her entire heritage in Moab, said, no, I will cling to you and to your God. And Boaz says, what you did here is even greater than that. Quite profound. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8, God is talking to his bride, Israel, here, and he describes the way in which he covered Israel. It says, when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. This is Ezekiel 16, 8. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. And I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. This is the entire definition of what's happening here. God is, through Boaz, bringing this foreigner into the family of Israel. And symbolically, the same way in which he brings the Gentiles into his family. He adopts the orphans and grafts us in. It's a great picture of God, uh, just like it was uh, with Rahab, this inclusion of the Gentiles prophetically towards the future that we are experiencing today. And this ultimately is all wrapped up in this storyline. So Boaz declares, <clears throat> excuse me, that this action of kindness is greater than the first. She didn't pursue men her age, regardless of wealth. She pursued redemption. She sought redemption. And notice what the voice of redemption, voice of Boaz, says in response to the voice of faith. Take this as a balm for your soul today. Do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. This is the voice of God to you today as the bride of Christ, as you come before your God, covered by the blood of Christ, covered under his wings, seeking refuge in the one true God, God would say in response to your faith, he says, do not fear, I will do for you all that you ask. And this should fill us with hope. This should fill us with initiative. This should fill us with faith to obey. And this should cause us to embody these virtues that we see in these characters. 
Uh, it's a great promise made to Ruth, but we're going to see it gets a little complicated uh, here, and we're going to end the story on a cliffhanger because as much as he is uh, making promises, he also understands there's a caveat and uh, a turn in, in the storyline. But a couple more points regarding Boaz. We also see the promise of the Redeemer. And in this, we see that Boaz is about to reveal here that there is another Redeemer, as we read. There's another kinsman nearer than him. Uh Uh-oh. There's someone else that hadn't been accounted for or at least hadn't had opportunity to claim Ruth and Naomi. Now, again, this highlights the virtue of Boaz, who could have manipulated the situation, not brought that up, taken what was clearly offered to him, and kind of kept the whole matter a secret. Now, we don't know if Naomi knew of this other kinsman redeemer. It would seem like she might, but she was playing the cards that seemed the most playable and that Boaz was the most kind and the most uh, approachable of the two. We don't know much about the other kinsman redeemer. We'll unpack that next week. But nonetheless, the promise of the Redeemer is being held in tension because now we see a a competitor, really, arrive on the scene uh, that throws a twist into the story. And he says in verse 11, as we already noted, Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a Redeemer, yet there is a Redeemer nearer than I. What does he do? He says, remain tonight in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then, this is awesome, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So, so Boaz is not cheap with his words here. He says, look, there is another man who can do you justice. If he does not do you justice, as the Lord lives, I will do you justice. And this is the character of a hero of a man. He makes his intentions clear that if given the opportunity, he will redeem redeem Ruth as surely as God lives. And this highlights the promise of redemption on the part of Boaz. But it illustrates the nature of our redemption in Christ, who redeems us of his own willingness. Isaiah 43.2 says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you my name. You are mine. This is the heart of our Lord, and this is the heart and promise of our man Boaz. Fourthly, in light of these turns of events, we see that he doesn't leave it there. We see that there's also the protection of the Redeemer. Now, interestingly, of course, this whole scene is fraught with a kind of sexual tension, if you will, where the possibility of things going sideways is like right on the edge. Either one of these people are slightly less virtuous than what they are. Things go south really badly. But that is not what happens, and it highlights in this context the virtue of these two people in their self-control and in their nobility and in their purity. So, But consequently, because of the delicate nature of this circumstance that they find themselves in, uh, Boaz seeks to cover her further. He doesn't just cover her with his garment. This is going your merry way. He says, stay here all night, rest, and then in the morning before anyone can recognize you, leave and depart. And the reason for that. Um, was really twofold. It was to protect the reputation of Ruth that nobody would say, oh, look at that lewd woman going to Boaz in the middle of the night. Well, look what they did, you know, gossip, gossip, gossip. But to say, no, we're going to cover this woman. We're going to keep this quiet for the protection of Ruth, uh, not to hide sin. He's not covering his tracks. He's not um, somehow kind of 
keeping things quiet that he doesn't want revealed. He's seeking to protect Ruth, and in so doing, he's proving his virtue as a redeemer. So this is an act of righteousness here. Uh, as he tells Ruth to wait until the morning, but then to arise before another can recognize her. And he says in verse 14, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. So he's covering this woman. He's protecting her reputation, very much similar to Joseph and Mary. If you read in Matthew chapter 1, Joseph finds out that Mary is, of course, pregnant by the Lord, by the Holy Spirit. But the image in the town was that she slept around. And it says of... uh, Joseph, that he was a righteous man and not looking to disgrace her, was going to put her away quietly, meaning he was going to essentially part ways with her without making a scene of it. And the Lord in Matthew 1 described that as righteousness. This is the same thing going on here with Boaz. He is a righteous man. He is seeking to cover this woman, not expose this woman. He is seeking to do what is proper with the most intimate of trust. So he protects her. And then lastly, Boaz provides as a redeemer. He provides as we come to a close. We see the provision of the redeemer. Boaz didn't send her home empty. And he said in verse 15, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? And in the Hebrew, it literally means, are you a different woman? Do you have a different name? Literally means, who are you now? Meaning it's not just a question of how she make out, like we would commonly say in our vernacular, but are you wed? This is kind of the anticipation of Naomi, that did something happen? This kind of like eager uh, <laughs> trait in this anticipation that has really been built up through the tension of the storyline. Naomi says, are you a different woman? Have you been wed? And of course, uh, Ruth tells her all that the man had done for her, saying in verse 17, these six measures of barley he gave to me, For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. So he provides for her, but in so doing, as he lays the grain on her, he's promising over her. He is furnishing her with hope. He is doing the reverse and bringing about the reversal of the curse of chapter 1, that Naomi came back empty. Boaz is acting as a true redeemer and saying, I'm not going to send you back empty. I'm going to send you back full. I'm going to provide for you, just as our Lord does for us. So these intentions, this is not just a token gesture, but a symbolic um, thermometer, if you will, of his full intentions to not leave Ruth and Naomi as they are, but to redeem them and provide for them. So Boaz, a worthy man, doesn't take from Ruth, but instead gives to Ruth and furnishes Ruth with weeks of food. Boaz is indeed turning emptiness into fullness, hopelessness into hope. Psalm 145, 14 through 20, I love this. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him and he also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. And in closing here, we see Naomi as the last voice in the chapter. And what does Naomi counsel Ruth to do? But to wait with a hope-filled patience. She's commanded to wait. She says, 
Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. I think today as we close this, we see this hope-filled patience that Boaz is a man of his word, and Jesus is a man of his word. Our Redeemer is a man of his word, and he will not leave what he has started unfinished, church. He will complete the work he has begun in you, through you, through us as the church. So I think two things that we can take as a closing application from this chapter. Are we living with a wise, hope-filled initiative that works with God in bringing his redemptive purposes to bear in the world? And secondly, like Ruth, are we living as a bride adorned and prepared for her husband? Does the posture and practice of our faith-filled obedience rest on the character and word of our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus? If so, church, we work and we wait and hope, for our God is a man of his word, and he will, like Boaz, finish what he started. And I want to close with our assurance of pardon, Isaiah 25, 9. I love this. It says, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this portrait of Boaz, of Ruth, of Naomi. We thank you for this portrait of redemption. And we thank you that we can work and wait in real hope, knowing that our redemption has been purchased by the blood of Christ. And as we're in the tension of the here but not yet, we work and wait with a hope-filled anticipation that you indeed, Lord, are a man of your word. We thank you that you have covered us with your garment, of righteousness, that you have wed us to yourself and that you are using us in this world to bring your kingdom to bear here and now. So, Father, we say use us and we be as a bride prepared for her husband, adorned and ready for all good works. Uh, Make us an obedient people, a faith-filled people, a hope-filled people, and let us do all that we do in love. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.